Good morning, Bethel. Okay, our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 12, 10 to 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 9. So that's Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Genesis 12, 10 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. Okay, so we're on to Genesis 12. Um, we're walking through, studying through the book of Genesis here. If you're visiting here with us, um, we're going through the whole book of Genesis, kind of a chunk at a time. And so we're looking at the latter half of Genesis chapter 12. We looked at the beginning of Genesis 12 last week. So if you're not there, you want to turn there now and you'll be ready to go when we get there. But I want to begin by reading a story from this book, Tortured for Christ. Um, Richard Wormbrand, um, this is where Voice of the Martyrs came from. It's from his time in prison, and then they wanted to be a voice for the martyrs. And next Sunday is actually the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We pray for persecuted church family members throughout the world every Wednesday. Again, plug for Wednesday night prayer. Um, you guys know we have a prayer meeting on Wednesday night? Um, just a reminder, um, 6.30 on Wednesday nights. But uh, let me read this. Um, yeah, sobering story here as we dive in for our study on Genesis 12. So Richard Wormann writes, A Russian army captain came to a minister in Hungary and asked to see him. This would be back in the time of communism. Um, communism was um, in control. The young captain was very brash and very conscious of his role as a conqueror. When he had been led to a small conference room and the door was closed, he nodded toward the cross that hung on the wall. You know that thing is a lie, he said to the minister. It's just a piece of trickery you ministers use to delude the poor people to make it easier for the rich to keep them ignorant. Come now, we're alone. Admit to me that you never really believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The minister smiled. 
But my poor young man, of course I believe it. It is true. I won't have you play these tricks on me, cried the captain. This is serious. Don't laugh at me. He drew out his revolver and held it close to the body of the minister. Unless you admit to me that it's a lie, I'll fire. I cannot admit that, for it is not true. Our Lord is really and truly the Son of God, said the minister. The captain flung his revolver on the floor and embraced the man of God. Tears sprang to his eyes. It is true, he cried. It is true. I believe so too, but I could not be sure men would die for this belief until I found it out for myself. Oh, thank you. You've strengthened my faith. Now I too can die for Christ. You have shown me how. That really happened. It wasn't just staged. So put yourself in that minister's shoes. Have you ever done that when you've heard a story like this? Like, how, how would I have responded? Or, again, this is happening even today, where brothers and sisters of ours are in communist nations or Muslim nations, and they're threatened with death if they don't deny Christ. So what would you do if you were in that spot? So there's a gun at your head. And they really will kill you if you don't deny Jesus. And they'll really let you go if you do. And this isn't the first century where people have to wrestle with these things. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was thrown in prison because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. And he had a blind, needy, disabled daughter at home. If he would have just promised to stop preaching, he could have gone home to care for his family make sure they had food on the table. And he didn't. So those are threatening situations. But in those situations, there is a greater threat than a gun, which is what leads us to our passage this morning, okay? So we're going to look at it in three points. There's an uh, outline in your bulletin if that's helpful, or you can... Just follow along on the screen. The, the slides will come up as we walk through it. So first point, threats and unbelief, verses 10 to 16. Let's just read it again here to refresh our memory. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So he had been called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, where everyone was a pagan moon worshiper. God chose Abraham and called him out. And he followed and, and exercised this amazing faith in this Yahweh God who called him. You know, he said, I'm, I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. All these amazing promises that he made to, to Abram. And Abram's just going blind, just trusting this God. So he shows this, he displays this amazing faith in the first nine verses. And now there's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians did indeed see that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake... 
He dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. <clears throat> so first off, it should sound a little ominous to hear that Abram is heading to Egypt when things get hard. Okay? It's not hard to understand why. I mean, Egypt had the Nile, right? So it's the steady source of life for their agriculture, livelihood, economy. On the other hand, Canaan was totally dependent on rainfall. So if you've got no rain, things get bad really quick. So I don't, we don't want to read too much into the text, but certainly he doesn't stop to inquire of the Lord. doesn't say that he called upon the name of the Lord like he did just a few verses earlier in verse 8. It does not seem like he's acting in faith here. Going to Egypt when things are hard doesn't usually have positive connotations in the Bible biblical history. So the famine was a threat. It's a threat to the promise, right? Not the first threat. I mean, Sarai, we learn in 1130, chapter 11, verse 30, she's barren. And God makes this promise that, you know, he's going to make a great nation of you. Like, how's that going to work? Seems like there's threats to all of God's promises to Abram. So not only to their health and well-being with this famine, that's also a threat to the promised land. I mean, if you can't even survive in the land of promise, why is it a good thing to even have this land given to you? It's not just the famine, though. The Egyptians were also a threat, right? A threat to Abram's well-being. He anticipates this. So he's clearly fearful in the face of those threats. So he comes up with this plan. He decides to be deceptive to save his skin. So he has this sister scheme that he comes up with. Why did he pick that? Well, partly because it's true. Okay, Genesis 20, 12 says, She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. So they shared the same father, um, which is not as weird back then as it would be today. I know, okay, but we'll keep moving here. So it must have been that he knew that there could be marriage proposals, right? Otherwise, him being the husband wouldn't be an issue, right? A sibling isn't a threat to an interested party, but a husband is. So you knock him off, and then you can marry the wife. Perhaps he thought that, you know, we'll say this, and if things get a little dicey, if there's interested parties, at least I've got time to escape, you know, because there's always these, you know, negotiations that go on for a dowry and whatnot. So I'll have time. But in this context with Pharaoh, negotiations did not take place. I mean, this is the ruler of the land, and he just takes her. She's just taken away. And we've got all these unanswered questions, don't we? What did Sarai think? Was this against her will? Did she condone it? Were they both wise to what would likely happen? Were they both ignorant or naive to what might happen? Once Pharaoh actually did decide that he wanted her for his harem, what was Abram's response? Did he sit quietly by, just despicably passive? Did he protest? Was this adulteress? Did they act? Or was God, did he rescue her before, you know, Lots of unanswered questions. So we don't know all of what Abram was thinking or Sarai, but what is clear is that Abram's motivation was self-serving. It was self 
protective. Did you see it there in verse 13? Look at it again. Why should we do this? Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. So this self-protective, selfish posture ends up endangering his wife, Sarai. He puts Sarai's safety, her dignity even, at risk. And he leads her into sin, into deception. He tells her to lie to save his skin. All of this because of a perceived threat. Because he was afraid of being killed. So as a foreigner and a sojourner, certainly he would have been more vulnerable. I mean, you've got no leverage if you're just kind of a pilgrim passing through. The famine is threatening their lives. The sojourn to Egypt is threatening their lives. But what is the real threat here? Starvation? No, that's actually not the real threat, the ultimate threat. Death? No. The deepest, most most important, significant threat is unbelief. Flip to Hebrews chapter 3 here for a second and see something. If you were faced with a really serious threat to deny Jesus or be killed or suffer torture or whatever, there is something to fear. And it's something even worse than death. Hebrews chapter 3, right at the end, the last verse of chapter 3, first verse of chapter 4. So we see that they, the Israelites, who fell in the wilderness, they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. That's a worse threat than starving in the wilderness. Because you know God can provide manna. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, he's saying to the Hebrews, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What should you fear? You should fear unbelief. That's the deepest threat to our well-being. Don't fear starving in the wilderness. Fear not trusting a wonderfully good and gracious and perfectly faithful God and Father. It's why Jesus said crazy things like, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fear physical death. Fear spiritual death, which is only a threat if you're not trusting Jesus and following him. So for Abram, famine and death, two big threats in his mind, and he acts, he acts to avoid, to circumvent both of those threats. He comes up with his own solution. He doesn't consult the Lord, and things go horribly wrong. So he perceived that the biggest threats were starvation and death. We as the readers, we can see that there's something worse than starving to death or being put to death because you're actually seeking to protect your loved ones. It's the blessing of God that's in jeopardy here. <laughs> it's not Abram's life. It's the, the blessing of God. Those promises that he made to God, like, whoa, what's going to happen now? So the real threats are unbelief and what's going to happen with these promises. 
So Abram's clearly operating from fear and not from faith. He's taking matters into his own hands in the face of these threats. And he might even be justifying it by appealing to the promise that God had just made to him. Well, he said that I'm going to be a patriarch of a great nation. I can't do that if I'm dead. So I'm just going to help God out a little bit here and have a creative solution. It's kind of like playing the lottery in order to give more. So, ironically, Abram does this why, selfish purposes here, that it may go well with him. The word for good is used there, Hebrew word, as if the good path can be found apart from God's will by taking matters into your own hands. No, God is the one who knows where the good path is. We can't trust ourselves with that. We need to trust God for that always. That was the primeval deception and failure. When we looked at chapter 3, the desire to determine for ourselves what is good. Well, God said no on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it looks good, and it's going to make me wise, and so I'm going to determine for myself what is good. So we have to resist every impulse to believe our own way is better than God's way. It's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, wants to come after me, desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life, like Abram's trying to save his life, right? We'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So can you resonate with the progression that we're seeing in Abram's life here? Perceived threat, give way to fear, lie, deceive in order to protect yourself. It's a common progression. And it backfired on him. No surprise. And God had to rescue him, just like he has to rescue us. So the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29, 25. So one commentator, John Salehammer, summarizes things well like this. He says, A recurring theme can be traced throughout the narratives in Genesis. One that is first noted in the present story, that theme is the threat to God's promise in 12, 1-3. In nearly every episode that follows, the promise is placed in jeopardy by the actions of the characters of the narrative. The promise looks as if it will fail. In the face of such a threat, however, the narratives show that God always remains faithful to his word and that he himself enters the arena and safeguards the promise. The purpose of such a recurring narrative theme is to show that only God can bring about his promise. Man's failure cannot stand in the way of God's promise. That's good news. So Abram in the driver's seat, wreck, total wreck. But God steps in here now. Point number two, rescued by the promise keeper. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And the beginning of chapter 13 says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. 
So due to Abram's unbelief, Yahweh obviously had to rescue. So he afflicts the Egyptian pharaoh with great plagues so that he would send God's people out with plunder to boot. Kind of sounds like a pattern, doesn't it? Like maybe this is going to happen again. So real quickly here, if there is a case to be made for Sarai being rescued before she was violated, and I certainly want this to be the case. I think it seems to lean in the other direction, sadly, just egregiously and grievously. But in verse 17, his house probably refers to Pharaoh's royal court and his family, including his harem, which could point at how he learned that the problem had to do with Sarai. Have you ever asked that question? How did he know it had something to do with Sarai? Well, Sarai was, un, was likely untouched by the plagues, kind of like the Israelites in Goshen, right? So why? Because she was not of his house. She was someone else's wife of someone else's house. So it is possible also that the harem could have operated like that of, you know, the one when, when Esther was placed in the harem and it took a long time before she would, her number would come up. So it could be a similar situation here. Um, anyway, so it takes plagues to rescue and restore Abram and Sarai to their God-appointed path, their destiny. And Abram needed to be sent out by Pharaoh to get back on track to Canaan. So what's the point? What's the application? Is it, be honest, kids, it's really important, you know, look at all the bad things that can happen to you if you're not. Well, certainly this episode warns against deceit and even more fundamentally against unbelief that leads to that lying or deceit. But even greater and more central is the threat to the promises of God. It's about God's promise to an unbelieving believer and his faithfulness, God's faithfulness, to rescue and intervene to fulfill his promises. Or to put it in New Testament terms, it's about he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Or, this is, I think, very appropriate to those crazy Corinthians that were such a mess. How does Paul start off the first letter? He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we take matters into our own hands, not trusting the God who promises to bless us, we not only endanger ourselves, but we also endanger others. Abram not only didn't save himself, but he put Sarai in a situation where they both needed rescued. So Abram's rescue was according to the mercy and promise of God, not according to his righteousness. God did not deliver Abram because he deserved it. So he certainly acted to rescue Sarah from her vulnerable victimhood here. He acted to save Abram from his unbelief, but he ultimately did it because he was going to be faithful to his word. So he promised to bless Abram. He also promised to curse those who would curse him. And though it was done in ignorance, Pharaoh got cursed with these plagues, right? But the point is this passage is, 
is saying something very important about the character of God, about the way that he handles his covenantal promises. The blessing that God has promised to Abram does require faith, but not perfect faith. So the blessing that God has promised to Abram does not depend ultimately on Abram's faith, but on God's faithfulness. You see, Abraham's, or Abram's faith, uh, failure does not thwart God's promises. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> because if you know, like I know my own heart, I'm fickle. I am prone to wander. So aren't you glad that God fulfilling his promises doesn't ultimately depend on your faithfulness but on God's? That's really encouraging. So we see the fidelity of God in the face of the infidelity of one of his sons. God's deliverance doesn't at all condone this unbelief, this sin. Instead, it shames it. And it should shame us into repentance. Like, what a fool for taking matters into my own hands. Right? So that's not only, that's not the only lesson, but it's certainly a key one. Another one is, Righteous ends don't justify unrighteous means. Okay? It's like cheating on your tax return so you can give more. Okay? Or like cheating on a test if you're a student. Cheating on a test or plagiarizing on a paper because you don't want to disappoint your parents or jeopardize your chances of getting into a good college. It's good end. You want to get it, but you can't justify unbelieving means because of a good end. Or you can imagine two scared teenagers, one who, ones who grew up in the church and the boys pressuring the girl to get an abortion out of fear of ruining their lives. Or you can imagine a husband who's faced, facing some serious financial threat and right, oh, this is happening right when the family needs him most, needs the provision most. And he doesn't want to let down his wife. He doesn't want to let down his children. And so he compromises his integrity with taxes or entering into some shady business deals or gambling or scrambling in some other unethical way in order to preserve his family, the well-being of his family. So righteous ends don't justify unrighteous means. So we see the multiplied mess that that creates. And we also see that unbelief is the deepest threat when we take matters in our own hands. So the faithfulness, the faithfulness of this covenant-making, promise-making, promise-keeping God is greater than our unbelief. We sung of it, which is great. Love it. How great is your faithfulness? It's well, not in me. Like, we're so glad that God is faithful, even though we are fickle and oftentimes unfaithful. He rescues and protects us in order to fulfill the plans he has for us, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope. And isn't that, isn't that just the trajectory that leads right to the cross <laughs> where God justifies the ungodly, where Jesus ate with sinners to show that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? So Christianity is not, you know, blessing for the good people. No. It's grace for the bad people. 
of which we all are a part. And the same grace by which we are saved is the same grace by which we are preserved and kept and enabled to persevere to the end. So my sin, even the sin, not just before I became a Christian, but all the sin afterwards, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many. Mine are still many. Yours, yes. His mercy's more. So this is really good news to see this promise-keeping, rescuing God in the face of Abram's unfaithfulness. So this isn't to justify or condone any unbelief, you know, as anything less than blamable unfaithfulness. Of course not. It's not to make light of sin. It's not to encourage any of us to play fast and loose with the grace of God. It's not to embolden any of us to be presumptuous. But it is to encourage us because we are all unworthy sinners prior to conversion, and we are frequently fickle saints after conversion, right? So we'll just conclude with a brief final point here. Tyler actually prayed along these lines. You know when that dad brought his son, demon-possessed son, to Jesus' disciples so that they would cast out this demon, and they couldn't. And so he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long has he been has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Anybody resonate with that? Aren't you glad that sentence is in the Bible? So I originally planned to do all of chapter 12 in one shot because it's so helpful to see Abram's incredible faith followed by incredible failure in the same chapter. And he's the father of faith. So the shift from operating by faith and operating by fear is striking in this chapter. It's terrible. We're disgusted by Abram's unbelief, and we should be. But it's familiar, isn't it? The shift from faith to fear. So, though it's despicable, this is actually hope-giving because we do it too. There's hope for us who have weak and intermittent faith. So, close with this quote here. D.A. Carson wrote this thing, an article some years ago, and I've come back to it again and again for myself and as an encouragement to, to others. So he's, he's bringing out the fact that in the Bible you have these polarities, like in wisdom literature and, you know, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who, you know, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Those who don't are going to be like chaff. Like, oh, I don't always delight in the law of the Lord. Does that mean I'm good? You see? It's like either or. There's no nuance. Or listen to 1 John. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And you're like, oh my goodness. I, I continue to sin, like every day. I don't always love my brother, like I should. What does that mean? So there's these stark, you know, either-or polarities. But then he says you have these messy narratives, like this one. I mean, Hebrews 11. Wait, Samson's in there? Wait, 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 time out. Can we have like a footnote for that? Like, can you explain that? Jephthah? Lot? So Carson writes this. The Bible itself includes genres and passages that foster absolutist thinking and others that warn us to recognize how flawed and inconsistent are even those we recognize as the fathers of the faithful. Certainly we need both species of biblical literature, and most Christians see a sign of God's kindness in the Bible that provides us with both. The narratives without the absolutes might seem to sanction moral indifference. If even a man after God's own heart like David can fall so disastrously, it can't be too surprising if we lesser mortals tumble from time to time. The absolutes without the narratives might either generate despair, who can live up to these impossible standards? or produce self-righteous fools. It's a good thing the Bible has standards, and I have to say I thank God I'm not as other people are. We need the unflinching standards of the absolute polarities to keep us from moral flabbiness, keep us trusting. And in this broken world, we need the candid realism of the narratives to keep us from both arrogance and despair. Most of us, I suspect, muddle along with a merely intuitive sense of how these twin biblical heritages ought to shape our lives. Bottom line summary, I believe. Help my unbelief. I need the beacon of those polarities lighting the path of where to go in this dark and messy world. But I'm going to be in the ditch, and I'm so glad that God can rescue messes like me. I believe. Help my unbelief. So we're going to learn with Abram, Abraham. He is being schooled in faith. He's going to get to the point where he's willing to sacrifice his son because he figured, well, he made the promise. He must be planning on raising him from the dead. But he didn't start there. And it's like this, not this You know, if you're really real, you're just going to be on this upward trajectory constantly without any dips at all. And then let's also notice that threats to promises are not accidental. They're actually intended in the school of faith. (laughs) It wasn't by accident that Sarah was barren. God wants to show his power. He, he doesn't want us to rely on anyone or anything else. He wants to set things up to show off his glory, the fact that he alone can save. And so once again, even those threats are intended to teach us to trust him, to teach us how trustworthy he is. We believe, help our unbelief. So let's close with that prayer, and then we're going to sing Living Faith, which is a prayer for that very kind of faith. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
this passage that shows us how you deal with sinners who are prone to wander. We thank you that we see your faithfulness and we do believe and we ask, Lord, that you would help our unbelief. Help us to trust in you with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge you so that you are the one who directs our steps. Lord, help us to welcome the school of faith and give us living faith. Guard us from fake faith. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.